Aditi, welcome back to My Mrs. Maisel Pod. I'm your host, Kevin Pollack, also known as Moish Maisel. To so many of you who have been very kind and generous with your time to stop me on the street, in life, so many places, restaurants, grocery stores, banks that I may or may not have been robbing, so many places, and all around the world. You've come uh, on your journey to my face to insist your love of the Maisel program. It is because of you and my love of the Maisel program and the experience that I've been able to share with so many gifted, talented people that I needed to create this podcast for you, for me, for them. You know I want to hear from you, so please, bear with me while I remind you yet again. Write to us, and by us I mean myself. And producers of the show, Ken Plume, Jamie Foxx, just to name a couple, write to us at mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. That's mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Any and all comments, but also some questions about guests already on the pod, including today's Mr. Joel Johnstone, who plays Archie so wonderfully, starting in the pilot. We will break down episode three from season one today, Joel and I. Uh, any questions for him or Michael Zegan, Luke Kirby from the first couple of episodes from the pod? I don't know. Maybe you're listening to this out of order. Hey, if you've got a question for anyone that's ever worked on the show, I'm here to tell you, let me carry your comment, question to that person. Get a response from them and share it back with you and all the others, along with your email. That's right. I need your involvement in this show, so please don't hesitate. Rate, review, all of that. You know how podcasts work and how to build an audience and help me help you help us help them. But also, post on your social media. Tag me, my Mrs. Maisel Pod on Instagram, just to name one. But also me personally, Kevin Pollock 123 on the Instagram. Love to hear from you. And every and always, help me please get the word out to so many people who as I mentioned at the top, have accosted me, but I need them to know, as you now do, about this podcast. So yeah, Joel Johnstone today with me, breaking down season one, episode three, and he is phenomenal at doing just that. He hadn't watched the episode, as he explains, in several years, and it was a joy for him to not only watch it, but a joy for me as well to discuss it in great detail, great nuance, great insights into aspects of making this show you do not know as a fan of it. And that is reason three this podcast exists. Yeah, Joel Johnstone, love him. Love this chance to share our conversation with you now. And here he is now, Mr. Joel Johnstone. Am I saying Joel correctly? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah, we'll work on it. What is the history background in 37 words or less of Joel Johnstone? Uh, I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Sure. Um, Where the name hail from? Scotland. Sure. We're a border clan in Scotland, a warring tribe from what I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Grandparents on my dad's side, Irish, English, Scottish, about in that order, and 100% Italian on my mom's side. Man, that is the best of all worlds right there. Because you get to be stingy like we Jews, as the Scots are known, but also uh, eat well from the Italian. Yeah, and just, a, and just a sledgehammer of the Catholic Church. You got, you got the Irish Catholics and the Roman Catholics, which, boy, if you didn't have enough guilt in life, that'll give you... <laughs> That'll give you a really full plate. Yeah, you do it nice. You do it up real nice over there. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, thanks for joining us today here for uh, season one, episode three. Man, it is my pleasure. It is my pleasure, and thank you because I I hadn't I hadn't watched that that episode in four years, and it's mm-hmm. what a fucking treat. Can we swear on this? You can. I can't. <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> no, you can you can swear it up. It'll come with a disclaimer. So yeah, the same here. You know the the joy of this for all of us, uh, hopefully is to go back and revisit these episodes. And there's always surprises and just stuff that you completely forgot about. Speaking of which, (laughs) what along those lines jumped out at you? I'm not going in any particular order in terms of how we're going to break down the show. We can jump all over the place, but I'll get us back to some sort of cohesiveness. But is there things that stood out in specifics for you? Absolutely. Well, I mean, Rachel's monologues, her stand-up monologues always stand out and that's, they're the, you know, the centerpiece of the show. And yeah, it's hard to pick one, but I forgot just how brilliant this one was of her stone on stage going in this rant, ending in, are those pretzels? Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, bolting I fell out of my chair stage. laughing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to remember when the last time we saw someone consume marijuana for the first time in a television program more specifically right. and maybe more enjoyably from 1958 <laughs> right, right 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 when marijuana was a it was it was a different blend in 1958 than uh... yeah yeah sure and uh stereotypically she's enjoying the weed with some jazz players in an alleyway um which is commented on immediately within yes. the context of the story but yeah that really was kind of great and also just luke kirby again as lenny bruce is uh, luke so many facets yeah you know he he was on the first episode of this podcast and just talking about you know the way in and it turns out he had fantasized about being lenny and then portraying lenny since from a very young age yeah not ever believing it would would actually happen I was thinking about him in this episode because it, I might be making this up, but isn't or wasn't his dad a jazz musician? Am I making that up? I think you're making that up. It's a good story. I think we should run with it. Yeah, I'm happy to run with it. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, his dad I'll call was his a collector sure of comedians. Of in fact, Luke had said he was thrilled to just meet uh, who is the comedian that hosted the first time we see Lenny Gilbert Godfrey. Oh, right. Yeah. So just meeting him, let alone hanging out with him that day of shooting was a ginormous thrill for Luke because... His father was a collector of comedians. And and what about you? What was your awareness of Eleni Bruce or just comedians from that era? My only introduction to Lenny really was the Dustin Hoffman movie, uh, Lenny. I, I grew up, Eddie Murphy was my... Sure. He was the benchmark stand-up comedian for my yeah. childhood. When I was going through that in grade school, middle school, you, um, Delirious and Raw, I don't know how many times I listened to those. Sure. I, I don't Especially know. in elementary school as a nine-year-old, that's just a thrill. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody told jokes like that. You know, my, my experience with comedy was David Letterman and SNL. And then when you get to the, the edginess of those two albums, it was just, you know, sure. but then somebody turned me on to Richard Pryor and yeah, Eddie Murphy and, and Richard Pryor were my childhood, pre-adulthood experience of stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Those are the two that I I knew when people said, who's your favorite stand-up? Those are the two that I listened to. Let's talk about your introduction to the Maisel world. You're in the pilot. So how does this come to be? I, I put myself on tape in, uh, in, in Los Angeles. I, my manager was on vacation in Europe. Sure. Uh, she, With she, your she, money. She, she, 
She, <laughs> she called me. She was like, I'm signing off. Don't expect to hear from me for a week. This is my vacation. Great. And then like her first day, she's, I think she's in Italy or something. She goes, you got Maisel. And <laughs> I was like, I Bello. And I've said this in an interview or two before, and I, but I want, I want to go on the record over and over for people to know. I've been a lot of table reads. I've never seen something more impressive than Rachel Brazahan own that room at that pilot. It was an imposing room. It was the room we do all our table reads in, but it was packed. Sure. More packed than our average table read with suits. And I didn't know who was who, but I knew it was, there's a lot of people here for a pilot table read. I knew that. And that pilot is all her. Yeah. And she just owned it. She owned the room. Yeah. It was one of the most impressive performances I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. This became such a star turn for her and then so much more because it was talent, experience, meeting opportunity where you don't realize just how someone is, how ready they are yeah. to become a superstar Yeah, until they get that opportunity. And yeah. It, yeah, and she was what twenty five, twenty six. I mean, I I twenty five. I couldn't put one foot in front of the other when I was twenty five. Yeah, no, life. we actually have a film of that. I think we're going to cut to Ken. Are we going to good? I'm glad we cut to that. <laughs> do you do that in post? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So that table read, well, good. So I, uh, but you put yourself on tape. Yes. You're living in a uh, what part of town in Los Angeles at the time? In the valley. In I was I was in Encino at the time. Um, now you're just bragging and. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm living, living in our small two bedroom. I have a newborn, sure, and uh, who we actually took with us. He was three months old. We took him with us for the. He was in my trailer filming the pilot, and uh, was that the three month old first flight or just first coast to coast flight? No, that was first flight. That was the first flight. And and um, how was it for him? You know, three months was was actually easy because they sleep so much. They just sleep, they eat. That's it. I took him back when he was a little over a year. That was the longest flight of my life. That mm -hmm. was that was. <laughs> Time just died on that sure. flight. Yeah. Uh, that was a, that, yeah, that was a, uh, I still have nightmares <laughs> about that flight. No, it was easy when it was three months. So you just put yourself on tape one time and then got the part. There were no callbacks. There were no extended. No, for Archie. No, no. I, I put it on. It was quick too. It was uh, a couple scenes. I don't know. It was, yeah, it was the two scenes in the pilot. It was where in the office and then the gaslight and. Yeah. I don't know. I, I want to say I put it on tape on a Wednesday and like Friday I got the text. How about that? And then the table read was like the following week. They, they And they flew everybody out for the table read. They they yeah. wanted everybody there. Everybody was. You know how like at our table reads now, there's certain roles that aren't cast yet. Some people fill in every now. Everyone was there. Every If they had one line, everyone was there. Well, that's that, one of the that reasons table. the room was so packed because there are <laughs> 97 people in the cast. Yeah. And Amy and Dan, God love them. They, they, had, they had the music like picked out <laughs> mm -hmm. at that, you know, for the, for the interludes and everything between scenes. It was, I mean, I've never seen such a professional film ready table read in my life. Yeah. It was incredible. It was incredible. And then you come back to do the series after the pickup to two seasons. And by episode three, now you're accustomed to what I call the carving station at the table read. <laughs> right? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. They're still crowded with every department head. Every, maybe, I think everybody in the crew is invited. Or yeah. cer certainly so it seems, because there's mm -hmm. always, mm -hmm. I feel like at least 100 people. Mm -hmm. um, but decked out like a wedding yeah. as you enter. And to this day, even with through the COVID protocols, there was always these production stills but not from 
our episode that hasn't been shot yet, nuanced photos of the day, of the time, of the th- yes. of some theme yes. that yes. takes place. Such work that goes in. I can't say enough. We're only three episodes into this podcast, and I wonder how many of these episodes I will do before I stop hammering how ridiculous these table reads are. But you can attest. I have friends, and I'm sure you have friends too, that are just jealous through their teeth that we're on this show, this once in a lifetime experience. And I don't even know how to tell them because it's an embarrassment of riches that like some of my favorite parts of the show, you'll never even get to see. Like the table reads. The table reads are a production in and of itself. Yeah. Each one is themed to that episode's theme. The the Catskills. Yeah. Remember they had the wooden benches? They had yes. the picnic lunches? Yes. <laughs> Whatever the uh, Where theme she goes is. to Vegas, they had like a Vegas theme for that yeah. one. I, I mean, yeah. Christ. Jeez. Yeah. Louise. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. There's a sense at all times of what is this? What is this show? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's I think I think it's it's all by design by Amy and Dan. And and that oh, yeah. is why the show is so great because everybody's on the same page. Uh, like you just said, all the department heads are there. No you never get to set and there's you never there's not one person that's like, What is what are we doing today? What is this? What yeah, is this? right. Like like on everything else. <laughs> Everyone knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. We've talked a little bit in the past about how certain department heads will get not scripts in advance, but they'll get breakdowns so that they can either A, build some clothing or B, build some sets. And a lot of times when you go to wardrobe fitting for a new season, some of us have learned to manipulate, coerce, cajole, pay off Donna our (laughs) wardrobe genius as we're trying things on. So what is this for? You could say yes, yes, and find out certain things. Was that ever your experience, or did you? How- oh, yes, yeah. I'm always fishing. I'm always fishing. Um- <laughs> and do you have a you have a, an annual wardrobe fitting as well? And I do, I do. I I ha- I didn't unlike you and Mike and Tony. I didn't have my own tailored suits until I think season three or four. But once I mean, I mean, I saw you had them on in this episode, man. That suit that you had on in the factory when Tony came. That is a gorgeous suit. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they, yeah, they've been building the clothing, which is not normal. No, not at all. There are genius wardrobe people who work on television shows, and part of the genius for other shows is that they know where to shop, they know how to yeah. shop, they yeah. know how to pull certain designers for certain characters. Yeah, just the, but they're never actually building the clothing. No, and, and Donna handpicks the fabric for each yeah. suit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you know, Amy and Dan are involved in all that as well. But, of course. Of but course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a reason that Donna just keeps winning Emmys. That's for sure. So it's amazing. So when you were shooting the pilot, let's talk a little bit about that. You got sure. the job, you go to the table read, and now you're shooting. What is the first thing you shoot and how does that go? Uh, the first thing I shot was, it, it was uh, out of order, actually. The first thing I shot was the gaslight. Mm-hmm. And where was that shot? That was the East Village. It was a space close to Alphabet City. It was like near Essex, just south of Alphabet City, I believe. And, and it might have been on Essex. Um, I don't need and, the address. But it, it was <laughs> 215. I'll give you the coordinates, the zip code. But it was the actual location. And then when we got picked up, Bill built it to spec. I mean, I yeah, I remember that because I I did theater there 
years and years ago, I did a production of Romeo and Juliet and that was our rehearsal space. So I knew that building fairly well. And I went back to Bill's set. I mean, it was, he had, it was to yeah. the centimeter. Yeah. <laughs> it was so impressive. He had rebuilt that entire real life space. Yeah. He's another one of those absolute savants. Savants. Who is untouchable in terms of yeah. the level of uh, expertise. Yeah. So you get in there and you're shooting the gaslight and you get to see Michael Zegan, his character of Joel Baum, right? That, that's the set. <laughs> that's you that's see? putting it nicely. Yes. Yes. And so there's that weird moment between reality and, and, but also wanting to act the reality. Other than you guys, when Michael was performing that, and was he performing off camera the way you do when the camera's on you guys reacting? Is Michael up there doing the thing or is he just? Uh, yes, the yes, yes. No, yeah. no. Every single one, he's giving it his all. Yeah. Whether or not the camera's on him. And are you getting a real sense of that feeling we've all had who've ever been to a stand-up show when things aren't going well? Does it does does the sense memory actually activate? Because it, it's <laughs> having spent my life in those trenches and been in his situation, but also been on the other end of watching someone. Yes. Other than bad improv, there is no other more uncomfortable no. situation. No. And then you add to that, this is someone you care about, he's your friend. And it, what's what's even worse because I have had friends try stand up. Um, nobody really no close friends go on to, you know, high end success. But, you know, I've been to a few ones that were very, very borderline good or bad. And then but the real painful thing is going to see a friend in a three hour play that's bombing in the first 10 minutes because there's no escape. There's no escape. And then they know you're there. Sure. So when everybody else is crickets, you have, to, you know, to be the supportive friend, you have to be the one, <laughs> you have to be yeah. that guy. Sure. To, you know, like I tried, I tried to liven up the, you know, that's, that's a death march. That's yeah. a death march. Yeah. But yes, I had a lot to draw on to answer your question from that. <laughs> a lot, many, many experiences. That episode, the pilot, you're describing was directed by Amy. Sherman Palladino. Yeah. And she did the second episode. And then this third one we're going to talk about was uh, Dan's. Yes. At the helm, Dan Palladino. Yes. I have said over and over that the only direction I've got from Amy was to pace it up. And I mean, now shooting season five, every episode, everything, every, every moment, yeah. every take. Yeah. It's the only note ever. Yeah. Yeah. Is that your experience as well as in terms of? Uh, yeah, more or less. I mean, the Amy and Dan, I just, I have such love for them and reverence for them because they, they somehow, I have left set so many times on other jobs and thought, ah, oh, shit, I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't do that thing. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it. I yeah. don't think I've ever left set feeling that. And they don't say, they, they don't have to say much to get that out of you. They get everyone's best. They just, they just, they, they get it. I think part of that is the rehearsal. It, um, a lot of my scenes, I would say definitely more than half are oneers, And we rehearse it so much that by the time the camera's rolling, you're already firing on all cylinders. Yeah. They make sure you are. And so they, they, you rehearse and you rehearse and you rehearse. And so you think you're behind. It's 10 in the morning. You haven't shot anything. And then by lunch, you're ahead. Yeah. And it's goddamn amazing. You, you like love the winners or you prefer the winners? Or I absolutely love them now. I absolutely, I mean, they're terrifying. I'm so glad you had me watch this because I hated myself on this one because it was the first time that I had experienced doing a winner in my life. I haven't done many winners in my life before this. And it was the first time that I did where 
I went up on a line and everyone's got to reset. <laughs> yeah. How much do you hate yourself when it's you that everybody's got to go back to one for? Well, yeah, no, it's maybe the driving force behind every performance I've ever given in a Amy Sherman Palladino one <laughs> is just single mindedness. I don't yeah. want to be the reason we're going again. Yeah. Yeah. Not anything about my character, not anything I want to achieve, not yep. what the scene is about. I am nope. just thinking, <laughs> do not be the reason we're going again. Don't make Conky take yeah. that big rig oh, fuck. off again, put it on our and up. steady yeah. cam yeah. operators. That's so. the other thing people don't get to see. They, our steady cam operators just, I mean, he is. Well, he's our Ginger Rogers, right? Yes. So he's they dancing say, every day of his life. Yeah, they dance. say Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. And it really speaks volumes to what our Jim McConkie is doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's go on to episode three of season one. Let's do it. Let's do it. I love that it starts with this flashback to a college party with Midge and Joel's courtship. She's yep. back to being a blonde. She's with the Shiksa god like Homer Witherspoon. Yeah, Palmer. Is it Palmer? Palmer, Palmer Witherspoon. <laughs> That's even better. Yeah, and they even have Joel's response to that as he shakes his hand when they meet is really? <laughs> Yeah, just a one-word question response to the name Palmer Witherspoon. (laughs) Yeah, she's with the Goyim and and attempting to do that. And he just is so smooth. Yes, yes. It's a part of Joel we don't see much after this moment because he's usually pedaling backwards. You see exactly why she fell in love with him. Exactly. That's That's it. Yeah. And I will say, Rachel has had many suitors on this show. The argument could be made for any of them, but I will say, first and foremost, her and Michael have outstanding chemistry. They really do. Extraordinary. Before we go on too quickly, I don't want to brush over the name Joseph Stromberg, because that's who played or portrayed Palmer Witherspoon. Palmer Witherspoon. (laughs) Yep. Uh, So wonderfully. And then, uh, yeah, so excellent points. Yeah, their chemistry is ridiculous. And, you know, look, the relationships for my old sensibilities in a movie or television show is usually the woman, but whoever's being sought after. Yeah. How they ultimately fend off and then melt for their suitor makes me fall in love with the suitor. It's always through the one character's reactions and energy who is being sought after. And so as smooth as Silk as Michael Zegan is in this episode in that opening scene, it is her being Midge's taken by him and her attempts to say, yeah, no, I'm with him, and I vaguely remember you. Yes, yes. It sells it all. They have a really great comedic banter back and forth, and you can see where comedy is what binds them. What's his first line when Palmer with the spoon walks away? I thought we got Goebbels in 45. Yeah. It's it's great. That's an excellent point. I've insisted we collect our friends and loved ones by their sense of humor first and foremost. A shared sense of humor. Absolutely. Even bigger than a shared worldview. Yeah. Yeah. Does he or she make you laugh? So that flashback ends and Midge is back in real time. And of course, she's in jail, having been carted off by the police at the end of episode two. Yes. 
And she, as we catch up to her in jail, was recalling that moment that the show opens up with. So now we have this sense of she's longing for that time in this moment of yes. uh, locked up solitude. And then, of course, she's not in complete solitude. There are these two women behind her <laughs> who are sharing war stories, having also been locked up. And one of them is bemoaning so much blood. <laughs> and even in that right moment, Midge, who's clearly not comfortable right. in this jail cell, can't help but involuntarily offer some advice on how to remove blood stains. The, but the, the salt? What is it? She says this. <laughs> um, I, I will say I wrote down a handful of lines that stuck out to me, one-liners that, that just yeah. got me. It's always hard to guest star to come in for one day on any show. It's really yeah. hard. This show, I would imagine, is really hard and girls like that they came in they have they have that one scene they were flawless the girl she the, the girl who she gives advice to you know she's going on and on and on and rachel gives her a look and she immediately whips around she goes do i owe you money yeah <laughs> floored me just yeah. floored me yeah she was perfect she was absolutely perfect yeah yeah well that's the great casting right we have this extraordinary did you deal at all with our Genius casting? Uh, Cindy Tolent, no. I was cast on the pilot casting team, and Cindy came, Cindy came in gotcha. once we got picked up. Gotcha. So after Midge is sprung, she finds out that it was, in fact, Lenny Bruce who sprung her. And then yeah. one of my favorite scenes of any episode, of any season, happens at this little diner where Susie mm. is holed up with a cup of coffee, where Midge and Lenny come in. And Lenny goes right to the cigarette machine. So we get the sense that Susie doesn't really know that Midge is there with him. Right. Or came in even with him <laughs> or knows him. So it's Susie who sees him at the vending machine getting cigarettes, whose sphincter tightens so quickly. <laughs> you can hear it and follows it with, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. They're there yeah. they're about. And Midge, of course, is very casual. But what makes this scene magical to me is how... Alex plays Susie in a way that Susie is never again played, yep. which is in complete and utter awe, speechless, mumbling, fumbling, falling over herself. Yeah. And, you know, again, whenever we see some sides of these characters that either we just don't see often or we never see again, yeah. it so stands out, you know. Well, she's pretty unflappable in just about every scene we see her in, except and it happens a couple times. And this happens when Marin gets to her on the phone. Yes. <laughs> we see the power of, of, of Rachel's mother, of, of uh, Midge's mother, uh, yeah, just, Rose, just yeah. her, her wielding her, her motherly. Um, we do. You're right. We see Susie. Gravitas. Yeah. And what also it helps me with is Susie's gives us the audience our first real experience of being in awe of the great Lenny Bruce. You know, it doesn't really happen prior. Right. We see him perform with a very small audience a couple of times in a small little room. Yeah. We ourselves, the viewer, know the name Lenny Bruce to varying degrees, what that actually means and what he did. Most people hang on to the tragic end. But yeah. in this moment, we get a real-time 1958 sense of, if you're in the comedy, no, this is the guy. And it's this crystal guy, clear. Right, yeah. right. Yep. You know, there's an earlier moment in the pilot where Joel says on that date with Midge, this is the guy I wanted you to see, or this is the guy I told you about. Right. The first time we see Lenny perform. And that was a first little sign of uh, Joel's in the, in the know 
of the comedy yeah. world. Turns out Midge is the funny one in the family, but Joel's certainly keeping track. And we as the audience don't really know where he stands in that community until this scene. Because is That's it just right. that Joel knows him in this kind of underground village thing? Or, or no, is he more of a broader big deal in the stand-up comic scene? Susie's opinion matters most. And even if, yes, of course. And if you went as far as to say the audience is clued into where in Lenny's trajectory we are at this moment in episode three. Yep. That is all made crystal clear by the Susie character's reaction. So then you're right. The very next scene is um, the, the conversation between Susie and Rose. And it is amazing to see also a sense of Rose in bed with this phone, very late at night phone call, which she's not happy about. But she instantly goes into control strike mode Yeah, that, that we don't get to see her character do too often. Exactly. 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 Yeah. yeah. Marin is just, she's, well, she's perfect. She's, she's always perfect. She's just, she floors me in this scene. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I, love I love her so much. And we see it's, she does a couple of bits in this again about the baby's forehead, which get me every time. Baby's forehead also lying in pain with the ice pack yes. because she oh. just can't control the chaos that her daughters brought into their lives. But in this moment, she's alone, she's in bed, she's reading a book, the phone rings, it's very late, and she just sets the book down calmly on her stomach and goes to work. Like she punched <laughs> in. I mean, it's... Right. And you get you get a, a glimpse into Midge's pain. Mm. Like this is, she has to live with this woman. She has yeah. to... Right. She, she has been controlled by this woman her whole life. Yeah. I realize I've juxtaposed those two scenes. It was the Rose Susie conversation first, and then we go to the uh -huh, jail. Uh -huh. I'm sure you'll get some some hate mail in the in the in the. Well, I, I might account. have subconsciously done that to generate any email. Uh, <laughs> would be nice. Let's see. Then we get the Weissman, and we see Abe and Rose's reaction in the very. Um, this is where Rose's unraveling begins, and Abe's ability to tune the world out. Yeah, yeah, is kind of extraordinary. He's 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 up to go to work, and he's just yeah. one track. Where's my briefcase? Stephen Sondheim does this brilliant thing all the time where two people are singing two different melodies at the same time and they ebb and flow together and they come into harmony for a second and then they go up. This is like a constant theme in Abe and Rose's life where they have, they're talking about two completely different things, talking over each other, talking past each other yeah. and <laughs> not a single one heard the other. That's right. It is kind of <laughs> remarkable and beautiful and that's a great analogy. It's not perfect. Next up is uh, the character in the show of your wife, Imogene. Bailey. Yeah. Bailey DeYoung is another bizarrely spot on, perfect pitch. <laughs> Just amazing. Actress. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I love that girl, man. I love her with all my heart. She's, she's amazing. She's just amazing. Oddly enough, I was just, I was rewatching some scenes. I was going through something my manager asked me to look at. And I don't have a ton of scenes with her. Almost yeah. all of my scenes are with, are with as man As man and wife. Right, right. Yeah. Well, it's been said in many vlogs that the character of Archie is a much better friend than he is husband. <laughs> I'll read a couple to you right now if you want. <laughs> it's not pretty. People are pissed. He's not a perfect person. <laughs> right. <laughs> but she's really driving home the Dr. Spock Yes. Book. Oh, God. Oh, as well as trying to not talk about Joel, because at this point it's been 
I think, established that Joel is staying with Archie and Imogene in their apartment. Yeah. And Imogene is trying too hard to not say the word marriage, not say the word husband, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. anything. Yeah. She's, yeah. she's so sweet. It's such a great character. Rachel's got another one-liner I wrote down where Bailey says, uh, you're, you're ganging up on me. And it <laughs> says, I can't gang up on you. I'm one person. That's math. Yeah, that's math. <laughs> right. It got me. It got me. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many of those little gems. They're almost like trying to follow along in a Marx Brothers movie. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. With the asides. <laughs> Just this, this brilliant one-liners. Yeah. Midge goes, leaves the Central Park where she was with Imogene and ends up back at the apartment, drops off the kids, lies and says she's all dressed up for a dentist appointment. But she's really going to meet Michael Kessler. The next scene performed brilliantly by Max Casella. Oh, my. Man, oh, man. You talk about a scene stealer who comes in in support from outside the regular cast and establishes himself in his first scene. I mean, it's. It's beautiful. Yep. Just stunning. Yeah. What he's able to do. And I've always been a fan of his. And I was yep. just, when I saw that he was in this, when, when they did the, uh, the screening for season one, it wasn't the pilot because the pilot had been released. Remember? So they did, they did episode two mm-hmm. where you meet him and he's, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's always great, but you know, obviously I'm biased, but he's just especially great in this. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah, it's almost unfair to the others is what we're dealing with here because there's a level of expertise and power and smoothness and guile, the character working his way through the legal system, which is very quickly and easily established that Midge is a deer in the headlights. And we get a little glimpse into his pedigree. Who did they say he represents Trumbo? He he had represented Trumbo? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So this is like a real guy. This isn't just some, you know, Nicholas Don lawyer. He's he's a real guy. And um, a real guy looking after voting rights, it's mentioned in Jim Crow cases, and also beautifully establishing by Amy and Dan that that kind of lawyer then and now doesn't have two nickels to rub together. Has that office. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. With the fence door inside the regular door to protect. (laughs) The, The Kirk Douglas painting propped up on a couple of books. Yeah. Kirk Douglas painted that in the movie and gave it to me. As payment, I'm sure. And what's he going to do with it? <laughs> right, no. right, right, right. It's not actually a Van Gogh. Little extra on the on the subway ride to that meeting. Midge is in fact already reading the Doctor Spock book. Right, which is just great. You know, I I like so many things in this show are, are introductions to me. I had never heard of that book. I have never heard of Doctor Spark. I mean, if you were to ask me who Doctor Spark is, I would you know only tell you Star Trek. You say that as a father of children. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, it was Dr. Spock book was very, very big and singular at the time and for easily another decade or two. I mean, that book and his name was crazily well known. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And and then replaced by 742,000 books on parenting. I'm, Which I'm assuming. I feel like I've read at least half of, and not a single one prepares you for the battle that is parenthood. Yeah. Not a single one. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, I can't, uh, I've seen children. I know it all works out on paper. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the taking of the case and the way Susie acts, helping Midge to navigate those waters of, we're not actually here to hire him. We're here to get his okay and take our case. And 
yeah. her character and position in that trifecta of characters is also great. Yeah. And then um, we're back in the Weissman apartment where Abe comes home and sees Zelda's sign on the door and says to her, I want to work with you on your signs. <laughs> right. I don't know right, if that's right. one of the lines you wrote down, but um, it stuck <laughs> with me. He, they give him great asides too. Oh. He's always unimpressed by pretty much everyone. Mm -hmm. Yes. Use of the king's English. Yes. Yes. And or life. Except who does he love on The Twilight Zone? Rod Serling was the yes, writer. Yes. And, he and talks host. about Rod Serling on Twilight Zone a couple of times in different episodes. He loves Twilight Zone. That is very impressive to him. Yes. Yes. I remember that that stuck out for me because Jamie and I, my better half, we are a Twilight Zone freaks. Are you? Yeah. So back at the apartment, the whole place is dark and quiet and Zelda's shushing Abe. And we see that uh, Rose has got the ice pack and she's ice just pack, lying yep. down and <laughs> she can't take. All the curtains are drawn and closed. Yes. And then we're in the courtroom where we meet Judge Hackett. Wrote down the actor's name, Joe Grafassi. Grafassi. Let's go with that. I'm probably brutalizing it. But I think the second was spot on. Grafassi. He's great, wonderful. You've seen him in other things. Yep. As a character actor, I take great pride in these performances of others. And um, <laughs> yeah, he's perfect. Yep. The sensibility, Kessler's failed attempts to save Midge from herself in this yep. courtroom setting yep. is also done amazingly. Yep. And she fails and it leads to her being held in contempt and thrown into a cell. With a two Back with, with Kessler now. Kessler's in there with her. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And it's, they don't even make a thing out of, is he there giving her advice or is he there also locked up? He's just giving her advice. He's in yeah. there in the cell with her. So it's easy to assume he was locked up as well. Yeah. And I love that we don't, yeah, we don't know how he got in there with her. Uh, we're left to assume either that was the ruling of the court or what have you. So, but it's an additional funny visual that yeah. he's seated next to her on the bench in the cell. Yeah. But he's just giving her straight up advice. And it's a perfect cut. There's a perfect like sound cut. Yes. She reaches kind of the crescendo of her telling off the judge and you hear clank. <laughs> mm -hmm. And now she's, a, she's right back in jail. It's just a perfect smash cut to her yeah. back in the pokey. One of the little extras that Jamie pointed out who does the, um, prep work for the show. The little extras at the bottom of uh, the scene descriptions is uh, Susie instructs Midge to keep her tits up twice in the scene, which is an established runner in the show to this day. And there are t-shirts and mugs yep. out there in the world that say tits up. And um, I might, I might've seen a billboard here. I don't think it was an official Amazon one, but I think it was something around the city. What's interesting is that I came up and others I've spoken to with a different version of what tits up means. It's when something goes sideways. It's when something goes badly. Uh, well, that went tits up. So apparently this wonderful term has multiple uses. Yeah. Uh, a little side note. Yeah. Yeah. The judge also calls Susie young man, young man, sit down or be quiet or something. Yeah. Yep. That, that, yep. those runner asides throughout the seasons, as Luke pointed out, they're funny every single time. Yeah. You would think a joke like that would get old. No, no. And when uh, the army guy, the army recruiter at the, yep. the opening of scene three is trying yeah. to recruit her to the, <laughs> just, yeah, every single time. Yeah. Season three. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and then one of my early favorite 
days of work on the show is next up where Abe comes to see Moish about the apartment. And it's all about Abe's design of getting his daughter and my son or Moish's son back together, really. So yeah. it's that struggle with Moish. And Moish calls him out saying, I never really got the sense that you like me much. <laughs> you always had a certain attitude towards uh, whenever he spoke <laughs> And about you nail him about the 13. You the know 13. he doesn't like the 13. You know yeah. that. You know he doesn't love those stories. <laughs> yeah. And the little aside in that that kills me, though, is um, uh, Moish is totally against this notion that they're going to share the cost of the apartment. <laughs> and Moish is it's already on sale. People are going to love it. Save it for the kids should they get back together. Let's go 50-50 on this apartment. And Moish thinks to himself and says... 50-50, like the temple seats. And you see that look on Abe's face because we established in episode two that they were supposed to go 50-50 on the seats. Yes. And Abe points out at the dinner when they're fighting, we were supposed to. I never got paid for that. And Moshe's reaction in, back in episode two was simply, this is about money now, right? So Moshe just never acknowledges that he has stiffed Abe for the temple seats. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so the callback there is kind of beautiful. Yep. Had you Now, I got a question for you. Had, had you and Tony worked together before? We had not met before. Met. Get out of town. You guys had never met? Never met. Had mutual friends, but had never met. Well, listen, when casting over the last 30 plus years, we were in a, a grouping of actors and you picked one of them. So it was quite rare for the two of us to be in the same project. Right. Right. Because we were the character actor who fit that ilk. Yeah. And it's funny how the cyclical nature of well, I mean, you people know, coming in and out of favor. I don't mean to make this such a mutual admiration parade, but hell, I'm going to go for it. You guys are just, I mean, you, your chemistry together is out of this world. It really is. You guys complement each other so well. It's perfect. They write those characters extraordinarily well. And we are bringing such different energies as designed in the writing, but also, um, yeah, I, I was just new to, and I'm curious about your take for your character, but I was very new to the type of acting that Moish Maisel is, which is this, as said by a bloviating, <laughs> loud, obnoxious, I'd never played it before. And so, as I've said before, when I hear from family and friends that this was the role I was born to play, it's uh, it's offensive. <laughs> As a comment and a compliment. Yeah, but what but you about have, you? You have those beautiful moments where you do come down to earth and you do level with people. When you say to Rachel, I can't wait. Is it season three where you say, I never liked what he did to you? Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, you have that, very, that heart that to heart scene. with her. It's just, yeah. you know, he, he does have a giant heart. He does of have course. a giant heart. Of course. It's, he's covering. He's a salesman at heart. That scene with uh, Midge and Moish and also Moish giving the big check to his son, Joel. Those two different scenes are... Uh, yeah. And in the last episode of season four between Moish and Abe in the hospital. Yes. Yep. Yep. It's yep. the one that people keep tweeting at me and texting and commenting. You know, I had dinner with Michael and Rachel that night because we were all staying up in Westchester. Right. For the hospital stuff. And Mike said, Mike said, man, watching Kevin and Tony together and that he said it was a master class. Oh, wow. Well, His words. Amazing. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. I can't wait to throw that in his face. <laughs> my next opportunity it was, we had five we had we were five drinks deep but, okay, but yeah, it yeah. felt like he meant it, it well, felt like that's he when the it. truth comes out um so there we are we're moving on to back to the courtroom and midge 
uh, sent Kessler to get the $200 from Joel. The way, speaking of compliments to each other, the way that uh, Michael Zegan plays that little tiny moment, because you see the love and fear for his separated with wife. Yep. In these little tiny beats between, you know, Joel and Kessler. And it's tiny and beautiful. Yep. And Kessler doesn't say anything, right? He just answers one question. Is she okay? And he just says, she's okay. Yeah, right, right. Because Midge had, you know, sworn him to don't ask any questions. Don't, you know, you're not allowed to ask me what this ever, what happened. Yeah. So the fact that he follows those rules also is a different level of man, you know. Yeah. And I feel like in so many other moments like this, the man would have said, yeah, fuck what she said. What the hell's going on? You tell me now or I'll rip your head off and shut down your neck. You know, you <laughs> the, you get threatened by that husband because that's what fear brings out. It brings out, you know, anger. Yeah. And he just keeps it small and it's beautiful. And, and then Midge is in the courtroom apologizing. Yeah. And he has that, that judge says, what does he say something about, uh, you don't want me to be angry again or, or you don't, yeah. you know, and it's just, it's, she's just. <laughs> Little lady. Oh, right. <laughs> she throws it, but she uses it against him, you know, as a woman. Yeah. 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 But then on the hallway, there's also that great little beat between Midge and Susie where she says this comedy thing, it needs, it's going to work, right? She needs not just assurance, but it's the first sort of moment we see, oh, this more than her on stage, this more than her coming off stage and feeling that sense of the power and import of a moment. The stakes are raised for her. The stakes we, are. This yeah. Is, we see her kind of a, decide. Yeah. I'm 100%. And then just dives onto Susie hugging her. Yeah. And that sort of solidifies, oh shit, what just happened in that moment yeah. was Midge making a decision and holding Absolutely. on to uh, Susie for dear life. And then we're back to uh, Joel Archie and Mrs. Moskowitz in Joel's office. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a little, little, little behind the scene anecdote here. I forgot about this scene. This was. I don't even think I could film this scene in this day and age. Uh, I was quite sick in this, and I, I didn't know it at the time, but I got home because I was feeling really not under the weather as we were filming. I had like 102.5 fever when we were doing that scene. I was so out of it, which is why I was going up my line, and I could, and I didn't realize it. I just, you know, was I was quite sick. And uh, doing those wonders, doing anything when you're sick, but then doing those wonders when you're... <laughs> When you're when you are not there is uh, it was tough hoeing, but yeah, I, I had forgotten about that. I don't think you could step on set these days without. Uh, was there a moment the, where you mentioned it to Dan, the director? No, the because episode? I was just starting to come down with something. Like I was just like I, I thought. I thought it was like the lights or the coat was sure, sure, Rick, gotcha, hot or you know whatever. I was just yeah. starting to get back. Also, the to, pressure uh, of the one or you're you're gonna heat up. <laughs> no, really, you're gonna heat up. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But it was, I mean, it was there for several days. It wasn't just that, like I, I was just coming down with something, but yeah, as, as we were there, I was, I was just starting to feel and, and, uh, ah, the good old days of a, the good old days where you didn't flu. have to get probed every single time you get on set. Yeah. Or just having the flu or just having the flu. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I got, I got a case of like a cold flu over this last Thanksgiving and of course tested several times for COVID and it was just a cold and a flu and it was, yeah. So alien. I mean, my body freaked out. I had 103 yeah. temperature yeah. and it was not yeah. COVID. Yeah. My body was like, okay, you've been wearing a mask and washing your hands <laughs> every well, nine seconds. You had you ever gone two years in your life without nope. getting a sniffle? No. 
question. Neither had I mean I think it was it was so the first time I got, you know, something. I got a little sinus thing. It was like and I kept testing. I knew it wasn't COVID, but but yeah, your body just doesn't know what the hell is going on. Yeah. I don't think I'd gone three months without getting a sniffle in my life. No. No, no. But yeah, no, that that was uh That's what the behind the scenes, the BTS that you can that's give right, us that's about right. Um that Mrs. Moskowitz, Mrs. Moskowitz is reestablished, I think, in this scene. She's brought in in episode two to replace Penny Pan. That's right. But she, of course, is further established. So is there anything you can tell us about? Cynthia, Cynthia Darlow. She, uh-huh. She's just the most loveliest woman there is. She's as cheerful as the character is written she really is it is really is it is a weird thing if you have her on i'm not going to blow her story because this is like a theater oh i will have her on what what do i need to ask her uh, ask her about her lofted bed okay ask her about the lofted bed in her apartment i already remember who built it but i but i need you do okay yes i need to ask yes it's an amazing story yeah sure it is all right so then are we into the, the village, village Vanguard oh where she's getting oh stoned and she goes up on stage and brings out the copy of Dr. Spock. And, but just seeing her hanging out, just sitting in the audience watching Lenny, who we don't know is just there to introduce the band until he's done it and the band plays. Because when we start the scene, he's doing stand up and it just seems, oh, we're at another show where Lenny Bruce is performing. Yeah. And the moments in the alley afterwards when the band takes a break and we see them talking kids and yeah. showing pictures and Midge realizes she doesn't have a photo of her kids. Yeah. I love not just we get to see the first time Midge's character or anyone smokes pot for the very first time in 1958 and what that actually means and looks like yeah. and is so well done. It's just, you know, the authenticity of this show is is a constant, but it's always those little tiny little things that make it so potent. Uh, for yeah. Me. Yeah. Yeah. No, Rachel. She doesn't cough and she believable. makes a big deal of that. Right. Yep. 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 And Lenny yep. even chimes in about, yeah, you usually cough. And then she coughs the second time and, and apologizes. She doesn't ever play it up. I just, this is one of my biggest pet peeves in actors when somebody plays up yes. an affect that, that yeah. is either they're drunk or high or this or that. Cause, you know, my friends, is, you know, the ones that do it and do it well, you don't, you don't really know. You yeah. don't really know until you go, oh, you're stoned. Yeah. A little side note to the level of strength of pot, certainly in 19. 19- 78. So this must have been true in 1958. 78 is when I was smoking pot every single day of my life from age 13 to 21. Um, But the level of the strength of pot was that there was a known attribute of the first time you smoke pot. About 90% of the people, so almost without exception, do not get high their first time. Now, we don't have time as writers in this episode you know, I always think in the writer's heads, we don't have time to play that game. We got this great moment where she's on stage performing. And as you said, it, her set ends with, ooh, pretzels. Um, <laughs> and she takes a giant handful and shoves it into her face. It's Yeah. 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 So a little sidebar. You 90% of the time when pot was so weak, it was just a thing. 
why am I not feeling anything? Should I be feeling something? And the answer was yeah. always never your first time. I bet you could smoke like a whole joint then. And oh, not, not really... just a whole joint, my friend. You had to smoke seven to nine joints. You would sit around for hours rolling with a double album, usually where the seeds and stems would roll to the middle. Uh-huh. And one of the one of the group was the specialist who could roll the best joints. But it was a thing. It was a hang. It was a, an experience. It wasn't about two hits and you're, as Dennis Miller would say, your leg gets up and leaves the room before you. <laughs> You know, the you you really had to smoke a lot. That's going to be for me. And I asked him to hold my calls. Um, yeah, you really had to smoke a lot to get stoned. You know, it's getting high off a couple of hits in 1958. And I mean, not even the band. Right. Unless right, they were already right, right. high and they just needed to keep it going. And also the, but I did like the authenticity of um, no one's making it a big deal that they're smoking pot in the alleyway. They're just passing the joint around. No one's looking around to make sure we don't get caught. There's a real loose and casual thing. And this is just our life. We're on break. Yeah. And this is what we do. Yeah. And Lenny's right in there with them. In fact, when Mitch is finally set off for the night by Lenny getting into a cab and he slips a joint into her purse and says for later. And then as the cab's pulling away, he says, was I supposed to make a pass at you? And he puts his hand <laughs> doing, on his head, doing the, doing his the hand, hand out. And it's almost it, yeah. like Lieutenant Colombo. Because he's got the beige overcoat on. I'm sorry. Was I supposed to make a page? It was so. I just. But before that final scene, of course, we can't forget the Friars Club because that's what happens between the getting high. Uh, there's a cutaway to Susie going to see Harry Drake. Yep. As so wonderfully played by David Paymer, another one of those great character actors. Yep. And uh, he plays Harry Drake, and it's shot at the Friars Club. Did they actually go there? I'm going to say yes. I yeah, do not I know. Did. I do not know, I but I did. feel very, very strongly. But I, oh. I will say that knowing the Friars Club as well as I do, there's almost no reason they wouldn't welcome in a production to shoot inside their hallowed right, walls, right, right, especially right. celebrating what that world was and is. May I ask for myself and for the audience, I'm ignorant and hopefully there are other ignorant uh, folks listening. What was the Friars Club? What was it established for? Do you know? Yeah, sure. It was a private club where entertainers, not just comedians, but entertainers of a certain level of success could meet and become members and lunch. It was a private club. And so most of the private clubs in New York did not allow Jews. And I'm sure the Friars Club was a big, big supporter of the Jewish ilk Ah. of performers and agents and managers, which is why Harry Drake is there. But yeah, I'll look up to see who the founding members were. I'm sure that'll be fun too. Um, Or maybe I'll put that out there for the listeners. Write to us about... The founding members and the history and maybe some unknown information, because it's all available, of course, on Google. But give me some real inside skinny on the founding of uh, the Friars Club. That would be great. Even if we didn't shoot that scene in the actual Friars Club, I want to know more about it. Yeah, I've been to the Friars Club in New York. I just don't know if it's the same location that it was in 1958 or where we shot and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's a beautiful scene once again susie's got to eat some heaping warm pile of shit that's right and confess to harry drake that he's god and she's nobody and what do i do now what do i do yeah 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 (laughs) what do i do need to know what do i do it was so beautiful as a written word and as performed once again by the multi emmy award-winning alex borstein in the role of susie myerson the levels we're seeing of the character in these early episodes yeah have become now 
looking back, a bit of a departure from the one that we came to. They lay a lot of railroad in these first few episodes for where the series has gone. Humble beginnings. Absolutely. Humble Absolutely. beginnings and in the face of power and talent uh, is this lunch with Harry Drake at the Friars Club. Yeah. And then again, there's that amazing scene of Midge and Lenny, her getting into the cab. Yep. And then Francis Albert singing in the wee small hours. Which, again, I'm going to confess my own ignorance. I always thought that version was Sinatra. I don't know why his voice sounds to me like, I always thought that was Sinatra. I thought it was Sinatra too. I just now meant to say that that's Sinatra singing and you're saying it isn't. <laughs> no, I'm looking at the notes here and, and I'm, 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 whoosh, you know, um, I've heard that version over and over. It's in, uh, I think it's in Sleepless in Seattle, that it version is. as well. And um, I just, for whatever reason, thought that was Sinatra. Well, um, I said Sinatra because in the credits that come on the screen from Amazon Prime while you're watching, if you hit pause during an episode, the actors' names will appear at the bottom. I love that. Yeah. And names of songs. And in the bottom, it says, Frank Sinatra, we small hours. Does it? Yes. So that's what threw me if you're now letting us know that that, in fact, was not Frank Sinatra. Who was it? You know, that version that you're referring to that that you thought was Sinatra? Well, the notes say Francis Albert. Is it? It, it is Francis Albert. Oh, oh. So Francis Albert is Sinatra. Francis Albert Sinatra is Sinatra's name. Oh, for Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad we got that on tape digitally because I'm going to play a clip of this. <laughs> Our great producer, engineer to the stars, Ken is going to turn it into a meme. Please. We're going to destroy your life, please. I think. Please, please. You so should. you thought is that his middle name? Is that artist that his name, middle name? Francis Albert. I. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> This is spectacular. Well, guys, it's been a fun career. No, um, I, I, I knew uh, there was a reason I wanted to have you on early. <laughs> I just didn't know it's because you were going to go away and we were going to be the cause of it. <laughs> you beautiful fucking idiot. Uh, All right. All right. Well, you had me convinced that I was wrong. And so congratulations. Credits? credits? Are we rolling the credits now? Were we just done? We're, uh... <laughs> <laughs> we're rolling the credits on you. Yeah, we just, there's a, there's a, a crawl. Of everything you've done. And much like in Star Wars, it just goes away into the back of the spirit oh, of the picture. Well, I'm glad we had that. I'm glad we had you. I'm glad you could spend a, a, a little o over an hour with us. It's been a real treat, uh, yeah. Kevin. I, uh... <laughs> uh, no spoiler alerts on whether or not you're currently in New York shooting season five? No, no, none. But um, so you know, this is dropping... Right when we finish shooting season five. So we'll still be in that between other land when this drops. People are going to listen to this obviously after season five, too, as it remains in the world and the catacombs of digital life and perpetuity, as the release form will say that you'll soon be signing. Yeah, we're in that in between land of having shot season five. But right now, while we're recording, we're shooting episode two of season five. That is correct just having correct. started and season four has dropped and people are going bananas and it was um i have a um right across the street from me i'll share it uh are, are we using this video for anything can people uh eventually sure eventually uh you see how bright my face turned red i mean uh, first it'll be a meme again of you and francis albert me and francis albert. is that really his middle name i i, I did not yes know that yes yes it is no francis his full albert name is francis albert sinatra yes that's that's in it's, fact his real well uh, 
you're probably I, wondering uh, who's uh, Francis. Who's Francis? Also, <laughs> there's a giant mural over here on Wythe Street. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the entire block. I went up close. This is not any sort of papering. This is hand painted. Hand painted on, on the side of a almost a, the entire block. Hand painted. Yeah. When people ask, why did you only do five seasons? And it's things like that will be the answer. They spent too much money. <laughs> we spent all the money and it only took us five seasons. So yeah, those of you listening there, there's a hand painted mural of many colors and Midge, the character in the middle. And you're saying it's almost a full block. Yeah. Yeah. And with kind of the theme of... Uh... Yeah, this is one of the things. they Their promotion is, you know, I remember the year that we got the great photographer, Annie Leibovitz, had only done The Sopranos prior to oh, oh, right. That's our right. bill. shot with her. Yes. I think it was for season three or two. I think three. But um, yeah, the only time she'd ever shot a television show cast was Sopranos and then we were the second. And so it was an absurd honor and experience. And yeah, the billboard went from as we had again this year on Broadway from, I don't know if it's 61st to 62nd or whatever the numbers are, but I think 59th to 60th, but it's like, what, why, why, what, uh, yeah. yeah. What was that photo shoot like? It was, um, you're, you're just the Zeus of photographers, you know, in this, it it takes a minute to, if not 90% of the experience to stop losing your mind. Yeah. That it's Annie Leibovitz and, and this is actually happening. And she's probably the, most casual of any photographer I've ever been in front of in terms of comfortable, not only with the task at hand, but her ideas and made it very easy for us. And yeah. also was in reverence of the show and wasn't trying to reinvent anything yeah. and kept saying what a fan she was, which we all thought, well, it's very nice of you to say, none of us believe you. But that was the first thing you sort of thought when we heard she was doing the billboard photo shoot was she must be a fan of the show. Because she's only done it once before, and this is a level of talent that only works when she wants to because, you know, a creative driving force, a need, you know, kind of thing. As is so many people who have worked on the show. And listen, you are uh, and have been every time on screen an inspiration to me and other actors. I remember working on something in the off season and the actor said he was with you in an acting class and thought that he was standing in the wake of Brando. and. You know, there's a reverence about you out there as an actor. And I think your work on the show is going to continue to remind people that they're right to be in reverence. So I'm I'm, I'm beyond humbled by that. Uh, So thank you for your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, no, I, I, this is, this is, this show is, will always be a, you know, uh, the thing I hold nearest and dearest, it's just, it's a once in a lifetime thing. And, and I, uh, you know, I just count my blessings every day. I still pinch myself five years into this that, you know, I get to be a part of this. It's just amazing. Yeah. Is there anything else at all about the episode you want to mention? I just realized I forgot to mention, um, we had a different cinematographer in this episode in the first season and maybe season two as well. Right. That's right. Our Emmy-winning lord and genius, David Mullen, would take a few episodes off throughout the first couple of seasons and then thereafter. So Eric Moynier, I think is how you say Eric's last Yeah, name. yeah. Brilliant guy, did uh, episode three. And so I wanted to make sure he got credit. But this is your time to do any shout-outs of your own, of upcoming projects, or maybe an existing podcast. Uh <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know what you mean. Uh, well, just uh, first and foremost, always to Amy and Dan for creating this thing of beauty and timelessness and... Uh, something I will always treasure and letting me be a part of it. Shout out to them. Shout out to you for doing this, man, because this is, I have, I have said to people like this, people need to see everything behind the camera, which is also what makes this show so special. Yeah. And to commemorate this in this format is is exactly what is needed. And thank you for doing this, man, because this, I, I think, will be a huge, huge hit in and of itself. And speaking of you doing podcasts. Yes. You can see Kevin Pollack in many various podcasts, but he also has a my favorite episode of a special podcast that's near and dear to my heart, Meeting Tom Cruise, episode seven, with bonus episode 7.1, Kevin Pollack. It's just me and my my good 20-year friend, Jeff Meacham, fanboying it out with people who've worked with Tom Cruise and just have really fun, crazy, epic onset Tom Cruise stories. And that's that's it in a nutshell. There's there's nothing deep or you know, what's the word? There's there's nothing you're going to realize about life about this thing. It's just, a, it's it's pure popcorn, blockbuster fun and uh, we hope you check it out. Meeting Tom Cruise on the iHeartRadio Network or iHeartMedia. Thank you again Joel Johnstone. And in closing, this will be fun on the video available. I want to thank Joel, very simply, <laughs> this was provided to us by Ken, our genius engineer and producer. Who yes, just- yes. And just and just a big shout out to Francis Albert, who, um, for those of you who don't know, yeah. uh, is Frank Sinatra. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you, Joel. <laughs> this very, is going to haunt much. me the rest of my days. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear sweet Joel Johnson. It was uh, a little touch and go with the embarrassment regarding Francis Albert Sinatra's name, but, you know, we sort of discovered it together in the moment as to uh, Joel's uh, uh, lack of awareness, but also on my part, lack of understanding what the hell he was talking about. (laughs) What a great recap Joel did for us. He did a wonderful job, and I loved talking to him. He's an extraordinary talent. If you have any follow-up questions for him, you know what to do. Write to me at mymrsmazelpot at gmail.com. Tag me in your social posts, letting people know about this episode and all of them to everyone you've ever met in your entire life for a chance to win special prizes from behind the scenes of the Maisel program, things that I've collected over the years. Again, we'll get into that in more detail as more episodes of this pod roll out. And I hear from more and more of you, your emails, matter to me. You're spreading the word. You're helping. You're rating. You're reviewing. Thank you. Thank you for your time and efforts of any kind on my behalf and this podcast behalf. Until next episode, I will see you in my... What's that? Oh, we should read a couple emails from the fans? Yes. Okay. Oh. You thought I was going to forget. Okay, here are a couple of your emails that I'm very excited to read, and I thank all of you who are sending in emails. It does mean the world to me. They're coming in fast and numerous, and I'm going to get to as many as I can. You are very generous, and I am overwhelmed, quite frankly. So here are a couple of your emails. I will be sending them to the actual individual of your question, crew or cast, anyone who ever worked on the show. And I've done that in 
this case, to Luke Kirby. We have so many questions, so many emails. Thank you for writing to my mrsmazelpod at gmail.com. And please don't stop. We will get to as many of them as we possibly can. This is a three-parter from David. I never know whether to read the person's full name or not. Hmm, David, you'll know who you are when you hear your questions read and Luke Kirby answer them. Three-parter, part one. Did Luke actually practice stand-up on stage in front of a real audience to fully embody his role as Lenny Bruce? And now, Luke's answer. Hi, David. This is Luke Kirby. Thanks for the questions, and thank you for all the compliments you embedded in them. Those are my favorite kinds of questions. So here are my answers. I did not practice on stage in front of a real audience. I practiced in front of a mirror, which can be an awful, cruel heckler, depending on the time of night that you practice. And now I'm thinking that maybe I should, but I ain't got the guts. I did act in a one-person play when I was 17 called Wild Abandoned by Daniel McIver. And on the back cover, one of the praise quotes said it was like watching Beckett done by Lenny Bruce on a jag. I didn't really know what that meant at the time and only half understand it now, but it kind of made me feel like I was doing some kind of stand-up at the time. But again, no, no stand-up for me. I cry too easy. Question two. Luke did such a superb job as Lenny. Is there a part of Lenny that lives on in Luke? In other words, knowing how Lenny's life ended, does Luke feel like a part of him lives on? If you're wondering what part of Lenny lives on, I would suggest listening to the song Lenny Bruce by Bob Dylan. I don't really know the answer. I'd kind of like it to stay that way sort of mysterious and beautiful. And here's part three. When playing the role of a real person who actually lived, and that actor does such an impeccable job of performing his work such that it never felt like Luke was doing an impersonation of Lenny, but that he actually was Lenny. How hard is it to separate your own self from that of the character? As eerie as this may sound, it feels like Luke can just go on living as Lenny. Am I wrong? Yes, I like to try and convince myself of that very same eerie idea. It's a fun game to play. It can feel very mysterious and ridiculously purposeful. It can shine a light on your life and illuminate unforeseen corners of your being and the world around you. And it's fun. It's a lucky and fantastic way to spend a day at the office. But like the song says, uh, if the good times are all gone, then I'm bound for moving on. I'll look for you if I'm ever back this way. Thanks, David. Later. Thanks, David. And thanks to all of you who are writing to my mrsmazelpod at gmail.com. I love your emails, and I promise to get to them as quickly as we can. It's a process. Let's close up the mailbag. Thank you for those emails, and thank you to Joel Johnstone for his incredible conversation. I love him to death, and um, can't wait to see him again and hear from all of you your thoughts on this episode. So now, yes, officially, write to us. My Mrs. Maislepod at gmail.com. Please remember to watch next week's episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. And listen and subscribe to My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you're listening now. Or, of course, listen to My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Amazon Music. You know what? You could just ask Alexa. Alexa, play My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Amazon Music. Thank you. Until next time, you'll be seen in my dreams and be kind to each other, please.
Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q Code. Q Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.